0: Great to see you. Great to worship uh, the Lord with you as we continue our series uh, called The Movement, where we're talking about that unstoppable force that God is using during our times uh, called His. Church, and we've used kind of this metaphor of water, which our team has done a fantastic job with. And even in that video, you saw how individual raindrops come together, those kind of represent us as individual believers. And when those individual raindrops come together, they form uh, broader pools and then streams and then rivers to an unstoppable force like a, a waterfall. A water can be a very powerful, powerful thing, which is why man has decided and understood how to harness that power. And they've done it, and they've built dams. You, you know this. And dams can be built for many different reasons, whether it's for just a consumption or a recreation or irrigation. But they've harnessed that, and they've made that into, when you have a dam, into some hydropower, And I know you might not know how hydropower works, I've had to do a little study on it and I'll give it to you in a very simple way, but that hydropower is created when water is allowed to flow through a specific area. And when it flows through one specific area, it uh, goes into a turbine and it helps turn a turbine and those metals or those magnets, they go over these magnetic coils to create, obviously, electricity. Hydropower is used to even power many, many cities. This is a very powerful source that people have used that humans have learned how to harness over time. In the United States, there are 80,000 dams, but only 2,400 of them are used to create power. And you think, what, what if, imagine if, all of those dams could create hydropower. That, that would be an amazing thing in, in our country. Or, or imagine if even just, just that one of those dams, if one of those dams had more than one outflow point, the, the, in this structure, if it had a ton of outflow points, I mean, think about all the power that could come from that one specific Structure. If we can structure things in a way that harnesses that power, it could change the world. It could change the cities. It could change the landscapes, change the, the cultures. Last week I told you that every movement has a life cycle. You remember that? Every movement has a life cycle. It, they, they have a conception they, they grow, they either succeed or fail, but they essentially, uh, uh, eventually, they dissolve. But Christianity is a movement that doesn't have a life cycle. You see, because oftentimes one of the reasons why those movements have life cycles is because that, that movement dies with or because of a leader. But we know that our leader didn't die. And our leader has empowered us to allow the Holy Spirit to flow in and through us to continue the work of his church. He's put the structure in place. He's delegated authority, and he's empowered us to go and represent him in the world, to literally let the Spirit flow through us. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six, as I told you, we're continuing our series. We are in our second week where we're talking about how the movement continues by empowering other people to lead. The movement leads And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. So last week, if you'll remember, we talked about the the book of Acts. And remember, Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. This is Luke recording all the things that the apostles did and said. Uh, Obviously, the majority of those things are things that they did that aren't recorded. But it's the record of those things that the apostles, the, the, the way they acted, And and the, the charge was to continue the words and works of Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But they were waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus tells them, I'm gonna send that. And there were 120 people that were assembled in that room. That's what Acts chapter one, verse 15 tells us. So 120 people are in that room. The Holy Spirit is given to that group. Peter goes in Acts chapter two, Remember? And he preaches this wonderful sermon that that is in the power of the Holy Spirit that's telling all the things that prophesied about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills that prophecy. And people needed to place their trust in him as the only name under heaven and earth for which a person can be saved. And it says 3,000 people come to faith that day. So the church, the movement grows from 120 to 3,000. Then in Acts chapter four, verse four, we find out that the church is now grown to 5,000 men. Only counting the men, there are 5,000 there. So obviously you can assume there are plenty of women involved in this movement. So you could even multiply that times two. And in Acts chapter six, verse one, it tells us that the, the number of disciples, the number in the movement, the number in the church is increasing That word increasing can actually be interpreted multiplied. So so the number of disciples is being multiplied. This is an unstoppable movement. This church that started with 120 people in one room that was empowered by God's Spirit to go and continue the work, the work that Jesus began, has now grown to over 10,000 people. 10,000 people. I I I don't know how to frame that for you. Uh, I'll, the only the context I put it in last Easter we had about eleven thousand people come to an Easter service at Christ Chapel. Christ Chapel. Th- this is this is essentially the size of Christ Chapel built in days. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable what God is doing through the movement of the church through the movement of his spirit. In fact, uh, one historian, this is a professor of history at Yale, he said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. These were normal people. These were uneducated fishermen who started this movement. But God empowered them for the power of the Spirit and it starts to explode, it starts to to grow as the Spirit flows in and through them. But as you can imagine, When this size of a congregation grows in a matter of days, there's growing pains. And that's what we're gonna see here in Acts chapter six. So go ahead and look with me. I wanna read just Acts chapter six, verses one to seven. And then we'll go back and break it down. But let's just read the the chunk, follow along with me. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing, that's the word I told you that could also be interpreted multiplying in number, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse five, And excuse me, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. And we're going to stop there for today. May God bless the reading of his word. So you've got, let me, let me just set up kind of the context and, and the problem in these growing pains. So you've got this congregation that has grown, exploded to about over 10,000 people at this time. In, in Jerusalem, in one city, this isn't like a, a, a multi-site church. This, this is all here. They're all meeting in homes. They're gathering towards the temple to, get, to meet and pray and worship together, but then they're going and eating together in homes, which we'll talk about later in the series. So this is 10,000 people and they, they need to learn how, to, how do we take care of these folks? And it said a complaint arose from the church, from, from this crowd of thousands of people. And it said it arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now that, that's kind of the two groups that are set up. It sounds like Crosstown football rivals, doesn't it? The Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists, those are ones who spoke Greek. Those were ones who probably did not originally, they were probably not born in Jerusalem. Remember, the Israelites had been dispersed from hundreds of years prior to that. They had been dispersed all across the world. And now they were coming back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They were coming back to Jerusalem. That's where they wanted to be buried. They wanted to be buried there with their ancestors. So they were making this pilgrimage back home. But they were coming back home, and they didn't have any relatives that were necessarily there. But they spoke Greek. And then you had the Hebrews. Those were the folks that were probably born and raised in Jerusalem. They could also speak Greek, but they also probably spoke Aramaic. And so this group, these two groups, were probably split easily over language. It would have been very easy to know that you weren't born around these parts, were you? You don't speak like us. You don't speak the language. So it would have been very easy to understand who was with which group, who was a Hebrew, who was a Hellenist. Now, they all belonged to the church, even though they didn't, at this point, speak the same language, And so what had the complaint that had arisen was, hey, they're not taking care of our widows. Now, why is that important? Because remember, widows were poor and powerless in these days. There was no uh, social system to take care of them. There was no real social security or anything like that. Normally, widows were taken care of by their family. But remember, these are the Hellenists, the complaint had come from the Hellenist group. These were the folks who had moved into town, into Jerusalem. They didn't come with other family necessarily. And now these widows are here by themselves and they're like, we can't feed ourselves. We're not allowed to work. We, don't, we can't afford to feed ourselves. We need help here. And so the group of Hellenists, they say, hey, the, the Hebrews aren't helping us take care of our widows. And so that's where the complaint arose amongst the people. And there's really, I, I can see, three problems to this complaint. First, that widows aren't being cared for. And we know by James chapter 1, verse 27, that it is pure and faultless if we care for widows and orphans in their distress. So these were obviously widows in their distress, and praise God, we have a wonderful ministry here that some of you guys take, uh, take part in called uh, Manpower that help the widows in our church. I'm thankful for you guys for doing that. Uh, but they're underserved, these, these widows. That, that's the first one. Second one is, there's an assumption that there's a reason why they're underserved. The assumption is, they're not, they're not being taken care of because they don't speak your language. That, that's, that's kind of uh, accusatory, that, that's not, not a good thing. And so that's out there and amongst. The other problem is it's just festering amongst the people. This wasn't just the widows that were talking about it. It, start, it, it went out from, from the widows to all of those folks in that specific group. You see, this complaint could potentially divide the church. And so we needed something to bring us together. The early church needed a structure by which they could be taken care of. You see, this, this growth had caused some growing pains, and, and, and all growth comes with growing pains. You know that. Our older son is eight years old right now. Uh, he is right now the shortest guy on his touch football team, but he is going through growing pains right now. He's like, you know, my, my knees hurt. I'm like, sorry, bro. Just part of life, man. Man. This is just growing pains, but you'll grow up in through it. He has a structure by which he's supposed to grow up into, and that's what's gonna be provided here. You see, for God's unstoppable movement to continue in the world, the early church needed structure in accordance with its purpose. It needed a structure in accordance with its purpose. Now, remember what its purpose is. If you go back to Acts chapter one, verse one, that's where we talked about how uh, the the that Luke was recording everything that Jesus, keyword, began to do and teach. The, the, the church is supposed to carry on the word and the works of Jesus. Always, always go hand in hand. The word and works of Jesus. But it seems like right now, as they were growing, it was tough to maintain both. You see, that's what he says back in verse two, is that the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It seems as if those 12 apostles were serving the widows. They were doing all of the work and preaching the word to over 10,000 people. How do you think the customer service was in that group? you think there were some complaints? Yes, we know that. They were doing both at the time, and they said, this isn't sustainable. 12 people cannot do all of the ministry. We need help. And so they say in uh, verses three and four, they need a structure. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, what they had realized was there was a bottleneck in leadership. And the way that you relieve a bottleneck in leadership is you provide a breakthrough through empowerment, And that's what they were saying is, we need to empower other people to go and do the work. And that was the structure that they were going to provide, is some folks to serve at the tables. And we don't know if those tables were specifically for food or if that was more of a distribution of welfare. Remember, we know tax collectors set up tables. So if they were getting money there or food, but they were getting some sort of provision, the widow's. But they needed somebody to help run those tables so that they could go and dedicate themselves to the ministry of the word. Now note, serving the tables was not beneath the apostles. It it wasn't like that's less than. They were saying, we need to focus on. They were doing both. They were happy to do both. It's just 12 12 people can't serve 10,000 in both ways. And so they needed to set up a structure now, ultimately, this is where we get our model for the, the deaconhood, the deacon ministry, the wonderful deacons that we have here. But that, this wasn't formalized as a, a deaconhood right now because if you look at it, look back at the qualifications in verse three. Who were they looking for? It says, hey, I, we need you to get people of good reputation. We need you to find somebody that is full of the Holy Spirit and somebody that's full of wisdom. Now, probably, if I gave you those qualifications, you would go, not me, not me. But let me tell you, that is you. That is you. Because if you look at those qualifications, someone that is of good reputation, that means that they were probably already doing the work, that they already had a heart to help. And I know you have a heart to help. Second, they are full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That they were demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Galatians chapter five, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They were exhibiting these things in and amongst the community. And then they were full of wisdom. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, remember, the Old Testament teaches us that it's wise When we follow God's word. So these are people who were trying to live by God's word. I know you're trying to live by God's word. You're trying to be obedient to scripture. And James 1.5 tells us that if we come across something that we don't know what to do. Then we should just ask for wisdom. So there's even an allowance for something that we don't know. Scripture explicitly says we can ask God for wisdom. And he will give it to us. What does it say in James 1? Without finding fault. He'll he'll give it to you. And so, all of you meet the qualifications here in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. You see, this ministry was a ministry before it ever got a name tag. This ministry was available to all before it was formalized specifically into a deacon role. That's important for you to understand. But this was an important structure because we needed to continue the word. That's what the apostles were doing. But we needed to continue the work of Jesus. And that's what the disciples were called to do. Notice, it said they called together all of the disciples. What does that mean? Everybody was on board. Everybody was open to be qualified for this. But they said specifically, we want you to choose a select few to help with this ministry. You see, the early church needed servant leaders in accordance with its need. That's what they were looking for, were servant leaders. Those who were willing to serve, those who were underserved, those who were willing to help meet the needs to continue the work of Jesus. Look at verses five and six. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. The, everybody that had assembled, it pleased all of them. And they chose Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit and, faith, uh, and faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And it goes through a list of these names. And it says, these, set before the apostles, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now here's what you need to know about all of those names that might not be uh, obvious All of these names are Greek, which means that all of these men that were chosen here were Hellenists. They spoke the language of those widows that were underserved. They probably knew the widows that were underserved. They probably knew the people that were complaining. They were probably picking up the phone on the customer service complaint hotline These were the ones that were dealing with the complaints. They had a heart to help. These were their family members. These were the ones who were speaking their language. And those are the ones that they choose, those who are close to the problem. And then the apostles lay their hands on them and commission them to go do the work. Now, laying on of hands really means two things. We get that example from Moses and Joshua where Moses is transferring authority over to Joshua. Joshua but it also signifies an association that we agree with this work. This work needs to be done. And it says they lay their hands on these men and commissioned them to go and do the work, to go and serve those who are underserved. They needed them to go and lead that, to provide structure of how that was gonna happen. But they were calling servant leaders. That's what what they were called to do. But you see, just like I said, you all meet those qualifications in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. And the reason why I tell you that is because there are plenty of needs in the kingdom. We're just waiting on servant leaders. Even go back to Matthew chapter 9. We've talked about this before when Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. And he said, hey, pray for laborers to go into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The kingdom of God needs servant leaders. Those who have good reputation, who have a heart to help, full of the Holy Spirit, exhibiting fruit of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom as well. See, every disciple is called to be a servant leader. When they called together the assembly, all of the the disciples who were there in Jerusalem, everybody was up for nomination, It just happened to be that they called these seven and specifically these seven who were Hellenists to serve the widows who were underserved. But my friend, you as a disciple of Jesus are called to be a servant leader. And let me tell you why. First, God has empowered you to do that. Acts chapter one, verse eight. You're empowered to be a servant leader because you are called to witness for him And what was Jesus? A servant leader. And as you witness for him, his character, his words, you are gonna find yourself, if you are following in the footsteps of Jesus, you are gonna find yourself serving other people. That's where the Holy Spirit is going to lead you because that's where it led Jesus. So you're empowered to do that from Acts 1.8. God has called you to do it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen, royal priesthood. You are called to do the ministry. That's You, you have been hand-selected, hand-picked to be a servant leader. Third, God has prepared you. I know that's a huge one that people say all the time. God hasn't prepared me to do this. I remember a series that we did a while back. Uh, it was called a Be One, Make One, where we were talking about uh, being a disciple and helping to make a disciple, walking alongside someone, helping them follow Christ as you follow Christ. And at the end of every sermon, we had three questions that you were supposed to ask one other person that you were walking with. It was very simple. That's all you're supposed to Preach the sermon, we ask these three questions. Take those sermon notes, go ask your person three questions. We got to the end of a seven-week series And I had so many people come up to me afterwards and they're like, Cody, awesome series, be one, make one. When do we get the curriculum? I'm like, huh? They're like, yeah, we're on board. When do we get the curriculum? I'm like, we've been giving it to you every week. Every week we gave you three questions to ask the person you're walking beside to help follow Jesus. And they're like, I I must've missed that. Okay, don't miss this. God has already prepared the work for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. As a follow-up to your salvation, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you are saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. No, it's the work of God in you. Okay? And then that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But then it says in verse 10. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He's prepared in advance for you to do. The curriculum's already been written, the the program's already there. It's, It's there. God has already put you around people that He wants you to be a servant leader toward. The work's been prepared. Will you do it? I don't want you to get seven weeks down the road, seven years down the road, 70 years down the road and go, okay, Cody, I'm bought in. When do I start? That'd be a tragedy. It starts now. It starts today. He's, he's already prepared the work for you. Don't miss out on this. And then finally, he's placed you there. That's the Acts chapter six, verse three. He's already placed you around people who are underserved. He's already placed you around people who speak the same language that you speak. They, whether that's by career, whether that's by hobby, dialect, accent, it doesn't matter. He's already put you around a group of folks that you know how they think, you know how they feel, you know about their ambition. You know about what their desires are, what their hopes are. And God is saying, serve them. I've already put you around those people. Would you you go and serve them? Remember, that's why I brought out that he, he called Hellenists to serve the Hellenist widows who were underserved. There are people around you, God is calling you to be a servant leader To take that initiative because when you do, the unstoppable work of God continues. The unstoppable work continues as servant leaders fulfill their purpose. The unstoppable work continues as servant leaders fulfill their purpose. And again, just to be explicit, I don't want anyone walking out thinking they're not a servant leader. You are called to be a servant leader because you follow Jesus who is a servant leader. And when you fulfill that purpose, the unstoppable work continues. Look at verse seven. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. So after they call those those men to the work, they, they delegate. They say, you can go and do that work. They give them permission. They already have the power of the Holy Spirit. You go and do that. The number of disciples increase. And they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then there's this interesting phrase here. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? Why don't you think about this with me? So these servant leaders go out and they begin to serve. The number of disciples, just disciples in general, increase. But then it says the priest, a number of priests come and do that. Why? Why the priests? Remember, they're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple is. So priests would come from all over the land to come and serve in the temple. Now, in and around Jerusalem, there was a high priestly family. Priesthood in the Old Testament was was very hierarchical. There there was a a high priest, Pharisees, Sadducees, those are in there. Then there's the family of the Levites, who at this time, there there could have been as many as 10,000 Levites, and then there were just normal priests. There could have been about 8,000 priests during this time. So there are thousands of priests to serve in one place in the temple in Jerusalem. They were all split up into 24-week cycles to come in and serve. So they have this this great ambition, and, and actually serving the poor and needy fell to the priests. That's what people's tithes and offerings went to. As they brought an offering into the temple, that money went to go serve the poor and the hungry, And the priests were in charge of of dispersing that, to care for those who were poor and helpless and hungry. But if you were a priest during that time, you only got to do it once every 24 weeks. One week on, 23 weeks off. I know, you think that sounds like my job, I get it. It's not that way, I promise. But can you imagine you have this great ambition I get to be involved in the work of God. I get to serve people in need. I have the title. I've, I've, I've got everything that I need here to do it. But I only get to do it once every 24 weeks. How disappointing is that? And then here comes along this movement called the church that says, you don't need a title. You don't even have to wait every 24 weeks. You can do this yourself. You're empowered to do it. You're given permission to do it. You are called to do it. You're commissioned to do it. And these priests go, that's what I want to be involved in. That's what I signed up for, that I get to do this every day, that I get to truly help people in need. I think that's why a number of priests come to faith, because it was the life that they were longing for. They wanted to do this. And finally, they were given an opportunity. If you've ever been waiting for an opportunity to be involved in the ministry, don't wait for a name tag. Don't confine it to these four walls. Don't confine it to a day of the week. We want to be and strive to be and pray that we are a church without walls, that the ministry would go beyond us that the ministry would flow through every person that calls himself a Christ Chapelite. Every member would be a minister for him. That's what we're called to be. That's when the movement is unstoppable, is when every one of us catch that vision. That ministry isn't just done by the, the high priestly ones, the seminary grads, the ones who live in the right place, but everyone gets involved. Everyone gets involved. Their hands dirty. Everyone has a part in the work of the ministry. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to join the movement. I want you to embrace your identity as a servant leader and identify areas of need around you. First, you've got to embrace your identity. You are called to be a servant leader. And God is asking you to step up in that capacity And then you need to identify those areas of need. You can do that in two ways, two easy, simple ways. First, is there an area of conflict around you? If there's an an area of conflict, oftentimes servant leadership diffuses division. Let me me speak to marriages quickly. Servant leadership will diffuse division. Division. If there's conflict in your marriage, serve. I'm telling you, it'll help a lot. So you can first look for an area of conflict, or second, ask yourself this question. If I don't step up, who will? If I don't serve, who will? Is it somebody else's place, or is God calling you to do it? Which leads to my second thing, Second, take the initiative to meet needs in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may not consider yourself a leader, but I do. God does. You are a leader. Take initiative. Leaders take initiative. Is there something that you have been saying, the church needs to take care of that? If you're saying the church needs to take care of that, I pray that you look in the mirror. Because you are the church. You're called to take care of it. Don't don't push everything into the, the, the ones with the name tags laps. God is calling you to do it. Take initiative to meet those needs in the power of the Holy Spirit and then finally, Look to the example of Christ to demonstrate servant leadership. Servant leadership is antithetical to everything in our world. It doesn't make any sense. And that's why oftentimes those social movements that I talked about earlier that have a life cycle die. Not only, they don't only die with the leader, but they might die because of the leader. Maybe because that leader is a bottleneck for everything. Well, the Lord empowers us through the Spirit, so there is no bottleneck. For the movement to continue but maybe it also dies because they're, they're, they're so addicted to pride and power our leaders but that wasn't our leader our leader was a servant leader who laid down his life for us and in, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 it, we're told to have the same mind of Christ who even though you might have a right to equality in some hierarchical structure You don't consider that, but you humble yourself just like Christ humbled himself for you. It's gonna take keeping your eyes on him to be a servant leader. He is our example, but he has empowered you to serve. And when we go and serve, the world will take notice and the unstoppable movement will continue. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the example of Christ that you didn't call us to something that you did not do yourself, but you empowered us to go and be your witness, to be your representative. Lord, I'm so grateful that you involve us in the ministry, and Lord, I pray right now for anyone who feels like they've been sat on the sidelines. Lord, would they sense your tap on their shoulder saying, I'm calling you into the game. I've got something for you to do. I've got someone who needs me. I've got someone who needs your help. That you would be so kind and so gracious to work in and through us that we would see your name lifted high. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.